Chapter Six, Part One of *The Swiss Family Robinson*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. *The Swiss Family Robinson* by Johann R. Wies. Chapter Six, Part One. Having now discovered how to provide bread for my family, my thoughts began to revert to the wreck and all the valuables yet contained within it. Above all, I was bent on acquiring possession of the beautiful pinnace, and aware that our united efforts would be required to do the necessary work, I began to coax and persuade the mother to let me go in force with all her boys, except Franz. She very unwillingly gave her consent at last, but not until I had faithfully promised her never to pass a night on board. I did so with reluctance, and we parted, neither feeling quite satisfied with the arrangement." The boys were delighted to go in so large a party, and merrily carried provision-bags filled with cassava bread and potatoes. Reaching Safety Bay without adventure, we first paid a visit to the geese and ducks, which inhabited the marsh there, and having fed them and seen they were thriving well, we buckled on each his cork-belt, stepped into the tub-boat, and, with the raft in tow, steered straight for the wreck." When we got on board, I desired the boys to collect whatever came first to hand, and load the raft to be ready for our return at night, and then we made a minute inspection of the pinnace. I came to the conclusion that difficulties, well-nigh insuperable, lay between me and the safe possession of the beautiful little vessel. She lay in a most unget-attable position at the further end of the hold, stowed in so confined and narrow a space that it was impossible to think of fitting the parts together there. At the same time these parts were so heavy that removing them to a convenient place, piece by piece, was equally out of the question. I sent the boys away to amuse themselves by rummaging out anything they liked to carry away, and sat down quietly to consider the matter. As my eyes became used to the dim light which entered the compartment through a chink or crevice here and there, I perceived how carefully every part of the pinnace was arranged and marked with numbers, so that if only I could bestow sufficient time on the work, and contrive space in which to execute it, I might reasonably hope for success. "'Room, room to work in, boys, that's what we need in the first place,' I cried, as my sons came to see what plan I had devised, for so great was their reliance on me that they never doubted the pinnace was to be ours.' "'Fetch axes, and let us break down the compartment, and clear space all round.' To work we went, yet evening drew near, and but little impression was made on the mass of woodwork around us. We had to acknowledge that an immense amount of labour and perseverance would be required before we could call ourselves the owners of the useful and elegant little craft, which lay within this vast hulk like a fossil shell, embedded in a rock.' Preparations for returning to shore were hastily made, and we landed without much relish for the long walk to Falconhurst, when, to our great surprise and pleasure, we found the mother and little Franz at Tentholm, awaiting us. She had resolved to take up her quarters there during the time we should be engaged on the wreck. "'In that way you will live nearer your work, and I shall not quite lose sight of you,' said she, with a pleasant smile." "'You are a good, sensible, kind wife,' I exclaimed, delighted with her plan. "'And we shall work with the greater diligence, that you may return as soon as possible to your dear Falconhurst.' 
"'Come and see what we have brought you, mother,' cried Fritz. "'A good addition to your stores, is it not?' And he and his brothers exhibited two small casks of butter, three of flour, corn, rice, and many other articles welcome to our careful housewife. Our days were now spent in hard work on board, first cutting and clearing an open space round the pinnace, and then putting the parts together. We started early and returned at night, bringing each time a valuable freight from the old vessel. At length, with incredible labour, all was completed. The pinnace stood actually ready to be launched, but imprisoned within massive wooden walls which defied our strength. It seemed exactly as though the graceful vessel had been awakened from sleep, and was longing to spring into the free blue sea and spread her wings to the breeze. I could not bear to think that our success so far should be followed by failure and disappointment. Yet no possible means of setting her free could I conceive, and I was almost in despair when an idea occurred to me which, if I could carry it out, would effect her release without further labour or delay. Without explaining my purpose, I got a large cast-iron mortar, filled it with gunpowder, secured a block of oak to the top, through which I pierced a hole for the insertion of the match, and this great petard I so placed, that when it exploded it should blow out the side of the vessel next from which the pinnace lay. Then, securing it with chains, that the recoil might do no damage, I told the boys I was going ashore earlier than usual, and calmly desired them to get into the boat. Then, lighting a match I had prepared, and which would burn some time before reaching the powder, I hastened after them, with a beating heart, and we made for the land. We brought the raft close in shore, and began to unload it. The other boat I did not haul up, but kept her ready to put off at a moment's notice. My anxiety was unobserved by any one, as I listened with strained nerves for the expected sound. It came, a flash, a mighty roar, a grand burst of smoke. My wife and children, terror-stricken, turned their eyes toward the sea whence the startling noise came, and then, in fear and wonder, looked to me for some explanation. "'Perhaps,' said the mother, as I did not speak, "'Perhaps you have left a light burning near some of the gunpowder, and an explosion has taken place.' "'Not at all unlikely,' replied I quietly. "'We had a fire below when we were caulking the seams of the pinnace. I shall go off at once and see what has happened. Will any one come?' The boys needed no second invitation, but sprang into the boat, while I lingered to reassure my wife by whispering a few words of explanation, and then joining them we pulled for the wreck, at a more rapid rate than we ever had done before. No alternation had taken place in the side at which we usually boarded her, and we pulled round to the further side, where a marvellous sight awaited us. A huge rent appeared, the decks and bulwarks were torn open, the water was covered with floating wreckage, all seemed in ruins, and the compartment where the pinnace rested was fully revealed to view. There sat the little beauty, to all appearance uninjured, and the boys, whose attention was taken up with the melancholy scene of ruin and confusion around them, were astonished to hear me shout in enthusiastic delight, "'Hurrah! She is ours! The lovely pinnace is won! We shall be able to launch her easily after all. Come, boys, let us see if she has suffered from the explosion which has set her free.' The boys gazed at me for a moment, and then, guessing my secret, 
You planned it yourself, you clever, cunning father. Oh, that machine we helped to make was on purpose to blow it up, cried they, and eagerly they followed me into the shattered opening, where, to my intense satisfaction, I found everything as I could wish, and the captive in no way a sufferer from the violent measures I had adopted for her deliverance. The boys were deeply interested in examining the effects of the explosion, and in the explanation I gave them of the principal and proper way to manage a petard. It was evident that the launch could now be effected without much trouble. I had been careful to place rollers beneath the keel, so that by means of levers and pulleys we might, with our united strength, move her forward toward the water. A rope was attached by which to regulate the speed of the descent, and then, all hands putting their shoulders to the work, the pinnace began to slide from the stocks, and finally slipped gently and steadily into the water, where she floated as if conscious it was her native element, while we, wild with excitement, cheered and waved enthusiastically. We then only remained long enough to secure our prize carefully at the most sheltered point, and went back to Tentholm, where we accounted for the explosion, saying that having blown away one side of the ship, we should be able to obtain the rest of its contents with a very few more days' work. These days were devoted to completing the rigging, the mounting of her two little brass guns, and all necessary arrangements about the pinnace. It was wonderful what martial ardor was awakened by the possession of a vessel armed with two real guns. The boys chattered incessantly about savages, fleets of canoes, attack, defense, and final annihilation of the invaders. I assured them that, brilliant as their victories would doubtless be, we should have good cause to thank God if their fighting powers and newborn valor were never put to the test. The pinnace was fully equipped and ready to sail, while yet no idea of the surprise we were preparing for her had dawned upon my wife, and I permitted the boys, who had kept the secret so well, to fire a salute when we entered the bay. Casting off from the ship and spreading the sail, our voyage began. The pinnace glided swiftly through the water. I stood at the helm, Ernest and Jack manned the guns, and Fritz gave the word of command, Fire! Bang! Bang! rattled out a thrilling report, which echoed and re-echoed among the cliffs, followed by our shouts and hurrahs. The mother and her little boy rushed hastily forward from near the tent, and we could plainly see their alarm and astonishment. But, speedily recognizing us, they waved joyfully, and came quickly to the landing-place to meet us. By skilful management we brought the pinnace near a projection of the bank, and Fritz assisted his mother to come on board, where, breathless with haste and excitement, she exclaimed, "'You dear, horrid, wonderful people! Shall I scold you or praise you? You have frightened me out of my wits. To see a beautiful little ship come sailing in was startling enough,' for I could not conceive who might be on board, but the report of your guns made me tremble with fear, and had I not recognized your voices directly after, I should have run away with Franz, heaven knows where. But have you really done all this work yourselves? she continued, when we had been forgiven for terrifying her with our vainglorious salute. What a charming little yacht! I should not be afraid to sail in this myself." After the pinnace had been shown off, and received the admiration she deserved, while our industry, skill, and perseverance met with boundless praise, "'Now,' said my wife, 
you must come with me and see how little Franz and I have improved our time every day of your absence. We all landed, and with great curiosity followed the mother up the river toward the cascade, where, to our astonishment, we found a garden neatly laid out in beds and walks, and she continued, "'We don't frighten people by firing salutes in honour of our performances, although by and by I too shall want fire in a peaceable form. Look at my beds of lettuce and cabbages, my rows of beans and peas. Think what delicious dinners I shall be able to cook for you, and give me credit for my diligence.' "'My dear wife!' I exclaimed. "'This is beautiful. You have done wonders.' "'Did you not find the work too hard?' "'The ground is light and easy to dig hereabouts,' she replied. "'I have planted potatoes and cassava roots. "'There is space for sugar-cane and the young fruit-trees, "'and I shall want you to contrive to irrigate them "'by leading water from the cascades in hollow bamboos. "'Up by the sheltering rocks I mean to have pineapples and melons. "'They will look splendid when they are spread there. "'To shelter the beds of European vegetables from the heat of the sun,' I have planted seeds of maize round them. The shadow of the tall plants will afford protection from the burning rays. Do you think that is a good plan? I do indeed. The whole arrangement is capital. Now, as sunset approaches, we must return to the tent for supper and rest, for both of which we are all quite ready. The time passed in happy talk over our many new interests, Every one had the pleasant sensation which attends successful labor, as well as experiencing the joy of affording unexpected pleasure to others, and I especially pointed out to my sons how true, genuine happiness consists in that, rather than in mere self-gratification. Next morning my wife said, "'If you can exist on shore long enough to visit Falconhurst, dear husband, I should like you to attend to the little fruit-trees.' I fear they have been too much neglected. I have watered them occasionally, and spread earth over the roots as they lay, but I could not manage to plant them. "'You have done far more than I could have expected, my wife,' I replied, "'and, provided you do not ask me to give up the sea altogether, I most willingly agree to your request, and will go to Falconhurst as soon as the raft is unloaded and everything safely arranged here.' Life on shore was an agreeable change for us all, and the boys actively went to work, so that the stores were quickly brought up to the tent, piled in order, and carefully covered with sailcloths, fastened down by pegs all round. The pinnace being provided with an anchor was properly moored, and her elegant appearance quite altered the looks of our harbour, hitherto occupied only by the grotesque tub-boat and flat, uninteresting raft." Taking an ample supply of everything we should require at Falconhurst, we were soon comfortably re-established in that charming abode, its peaceful shade seeming more delightful than ever, after the heat and hard work we had lately undergone. Several Sundays had passed during our stay at Tentholm, and the welcome day of rest now returned again, to be observed with heartfelt devotion and grateful praise. I did not attempt too much in the form of preaching, as I could not have secured the attention of my hearers to any long-winded discourse, but they were interested in the Bible-reading and simple instructions I drew from it, and their young voices joined sweetly in favourite hymns, which my wife sang from memory. In the evening I desired the boys to let me see their dexterity in athletic exercises, such as running, leaping, wrestling, and climbing, 
telling them they must keep up the practice of these things, so as to grow strong, active men, powerful to repel and cope with danger, as well as agile and swift-footed to escape from it. No man can be really courageous and self-reliant without an inward consciousness of physical power and capability. "'I want to see my sons strong, both morally and physically,' said I. "'That means, little Franz,' as the large blue eyes looked inquiringly up at me, "'brave to do what is good and right, and to hate evil, "'and strong to work, hunt, and provide for themselves and others, "'and to fight if necessary.' On the following day, the boys seeming disposed to carry out my wishes by muscular exercise of all sorts, I encouraged them by saying I meant to prepare a curious new weapon for them, only they must promise not to neglect the practice of archery. As to their guns, I had no reason to fear they would be laid aside. Taking a long cord, I attached a leaden bullet to each end, and had instantly to answer a storm of questions as to what this could possibly be for. "'This is a miniature lasso,' said I. "'The Mexicans, Patagonians, and various tribes of South America "'make use of this weapon in hunting, with marvellous dexterity, "'only, having no bullets, they fasten stones to their ropes, "'which are immensely longer than this. "'One end is swung round and round the mounted hunter's head, "'and then cast with skill and precision toward the animal he wishes to strike. "'Immediately drawing it back, he can repeat the blow,' and either kill or wound his prey. Frequently, however, the intention is to take the animal, wild horse or buffalo, or whatever it may be, alive, and in that case the lasso is thrown while riding in hot pursuit, in such a way as to make the stone twist many times round the neck, body, or legs of the fugitive, arresting him even in full career. "'Oh, father, what a splendid contrivance! Will you try it now? There's the donkey, father! Do catch the donkey!' Not at all certain of my powers, I declined to practice upon a live subject, but consented to make a trial of skill by aiming at the stump of a tree at no great distance. My success surpassed my own expectations. The stump was entwined by the cord in such a way as to leave no doubt whatever as to the feasibility of the wonderful performances I described, and I was assailed by petitions from the boys, each anxious to possess a lasso of his own, without a moment's delay." As the manufacture was simple, their wishes were speedily gratified, and lasso practice became the order of the day. Fritz, who was the most active and adroit, besides having, of course, the greatest muscular strength, soon became skilled in the art. End of chapter 6, part 1, read by Kara Schallenberg on July 16, 2009, in San Diego, California.